Welcome to the Inside the Journey podcast. I'm Nelson DeWitt. And I'm John Younger. Our guest today is Jorge Cuellar, someone that I've met through my work on the film. He is a PhD candidate at Yale University, and we sat down with him to talk about his dissertation and what being Salvadoran means to him. Hope you enjoy the show. So my guest today is Jorge Cuellar, and uh, he is a friend of mine who I met at Yale University while I was speaking there, and he's been in touch with us over the past couple of years about our film project. So uh, Jorge, it's great to have you here today. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, Nelson and John. So I guess a good place to start is just give us a, a little bit of background about who you are and what you're doing at, at Yale. I am currently a, a doctoral student in the American Studies program at Yale, born in El Salvador, and naturally, perhaps not, perhaps not naturally, but my work also is about El Salvador and particularly indigenous people. I've been at Yale for about three years now. Prior to that, I did my uh, a master's degree at the University of Southern California. And before that, I did my undergraduate at UC Santa Barbara. I'm from the Los Angeles area, from Echo Park. Uh, okay. and, and yeah, I mean, I miss Southern California, especially on a day like today. <laughs> <laughs> so Jorge, we'd like to start with just a little bit of uh, your personal background. I know you grew up in El Salvador, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about when you left El Salvador, when you came here, and what your life was like in that time period. Sure. Um, so I was born in El Salvador in eight, 1988, and I left the country when I was four in August 1992, about a couple months after the signing of the peace accords. And I landed, like many Salvadorans do, in Los Angeles, in the kind of Pico Union area of L.A., which is even today still uh, has a huge community of Salvadorans. And growing up, I mean, I remember certain things about El Salvador as a four-year-old, but very little. Many just concerned the, the migration experience, so like taking passport photos and like packing bags and like the sadness around leaving kind of cousins and aunts behind. So that I remember that sadness. But coming to L.A., I mean, I was given that I was four, it almost felt like I was born in California because of the kind of ease of which I, I was able to like assimilate the language, kind of make friends, you know, and, and the whole and the whole thing. So none of that felt too foreign, except that I guess with my family, given that I have two older sisters, they had a harder time kind of with the language, with the culture, and experience more of the culture shock that comes with migration. For me, I was practically, I think it's what, what they call it is 1.5 generation. And that's, that's, that's kind of like what I am. So I had an ease to, to become part of the, of the kind of American culture pretty quickly. So your family would have experienced some of the war and remembered it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, both my parents experienced most of it. Around the area that we're from, which is um, in the department of Cuscatlan, it's about um, an hour, an hour and a half away from San Salvador, western, western El Salvador. The, the war wasn't too intense there. It was strange how, like, it was, it was more of a corridor where things were being transported and, and things were moving around, people were moving through, but there, was no, uh, there were no skirmishes or battles to speak of right in the area that we, that we lived. So in that sense, we evaded a lot of the violence. 
But that doesn't mean we were totally immune from hearing about it or knowing people who experienced it, right? And so, so in that sense, my parents kind of occupied more of a kind of neutral role as kind of observers of the struggle rather than outright participants. And my sisters, too. I mean, they were about teen, teenagers, I believe, at that point. And they, uh, and they remember things, you know, um, seeing truckloads of bodies kind of being, being driven down, you know, like carretera to be dumped in a, in a trench someplace, you know, in a dried out river that is now a trench, you know, things like this that, that, were, that were part of the kind of uh, daily life of people during the Salvadoran Civil War. But other than that, I mean, I personally do not have those memories, though after kind of doing some of that work myself and feeling more comfortable and engaging my family about these topics, as I grew older, I began to kind of excavate and understand and kind of piece things together for myself. Do you think that makes it easier for you in some way that you don't have these memories of El Salvador and the war? Perhaps. I mean, I actually was thinking about this the other day, and I came to this, like, perhaps an extreme conclusion, but that most Salvadorans have at least a mild case of PTSD. And I think myself included, where, like, it's not necessarily that I need to have the memories, but the fact that I'm around people who have those memories and they're vivid to them and they're they're still alive in some ways and they need to work through them makes them makes them real in my world as well because of the kind of description, emotion, and kind of visual imagery that's attached to those memories. And so when they share, that kind of that emotional response kind of elicits something in me too. Even though I may have not experienced them, I can totally relate in a very kind of oddly kind of way. One one thing that really stuck with me from our, our trip when, when we went to the Day of the Disappeared in 2011 was at the very end of the trip, we went to a bar down the street from one of Nelson's aunt's houses. And, yes. and, uh, and there was soldiers there, um, and there were college professors, and the people we were with made sure to point out there's everybody here. you know, And they were all sitting down together, and it's very much struck me they're 20 years removed from a civil war. And... The civil war in which like a quarter of the population was displaced from their homes and, you know, in a, a place the size of Massachusetts, 70 or 80,000 people died. And obviously people are very much still affected by it and it's still very present in everybody's lives. And it was jarring to, to feel it, you know. Yeah, I mean, like even... So even, it's so different than not, not your experience, yeah. but most Americans' experiences. Sure, yeah. I mean, even today, like, when I go back to El Salvador, I still see the kind of remnants of, of the war, like, these kind of residues that are always around. And you see it around election time, especially, right? I don't know if you guys have been down there during during the electoral moments, but those times are like, just really intense, the kind of polarization that you see politically and socially that happens. You know, there's all the same kinds of narratives that were being you know, circulated during the war in newspapers and in radio broadcasts and TV programming. There's a renaissance of it in every electoral cycle where there's still this kind of Cold War problem that needs to be solved. And I think that, that I even see in the kind of community of Salvadorans in the diaspora in, in California, which is primarily the experience I have, but there's still a kind of divide amongst people who have yet to reconcile some of the political issues that came up in the war that never really got resolved, that the peace accords never really attended to. Um, they, they, it was a ceasefire, really. That's all that was. It was never a kind of political resolution that was going to lead people to 
you know, see see the other person's plight and do something about it. If we think we're divided in this country, I mean, yeah. uh, there's just basic arguments over the truth of what what happened, right? I don't know if you're, you're aware of this, but so there's a so the so the right wing party in El Salvador Arena has their their anthem, and that anthem is a very kind of anti-communist crusade type anthem that is still sung every year around their convention, around you know, and it's, it's used to galvanize their political party in El Salvador. And so they deploy these metaphors and continue to kind of play upon the division, the political division between people, and kind of continue to hit that wedge and hit that mark in order to like gain political, you know, power and recognition. That's again something that has yet to go away, and a lot of people have problems talking about it because of the, I guess, the continued fear of a new upsurge of violence. Right? This is a negotiated solution that we're living, and that doesn't necessarily mean it'll hold. Although, just recently, I think a couple of days ago, the 16th, um, was the 27th year of the peace accords, right? And so we had the UN Secretary General in El Salvador, you know, celebrating the peace. But it's a, it's a really kind of tentative peace. It's not, um, it's a model for, right, a, a peaceful resolution of a civil war, but it's, it's not necessarily a productive one. It's more of a kind of just stalemate that persists and persists, and persists. Well, that's one of the, the issues that we try to address in the film is the, you know, how the amnesty laws kind of impacted El Salvador. One thing we've talked about on the podcast is that it's hard to define justice, you know, that saying, how do you rectify the human rights abuses that, that took place in Central America? You know, how do you make that right? Because, you know, once a family is broken, you can't really like piece it back together, for example. It's a lot easier to say that there were injustices. And if people were held accountable for the injustices, then that would move the country towards some sort of resolution, maybe, you know. So that's that's one of the issues that we try and um, talk about, at least, or address Mm -hmm. in the film. Yeah, no, um, yeah, that's one of the kind of more powerful things that I noticed in the in the segments that you shared shared with us when you were at Yale. Yeah, it's that question of kind of injustice and justice, and how to find methods and strategies to to get people to not only recognize the problems at hand and the things that transpired, but in order to find kind of collaborative solutions to to resolve the problem, not only resolve the problem in the in the kind of symbolic sense where there's, a, there's an event that includes the disappeared and there's a fanfare around it, but rather kind of something that, that really strikes the core as to the many contradictions that the problem of the disappeared and the problem of injustice is like really centrally tied to, which I think is really a problem of kind of, of Salvadoran governance and Salvadoran economics, where there's really a huge kind of chasm that the government isn't really able to, to address because of various things that they're enmeshed in, international pressures, local, local elites, uh, indigenous upsurge, all sorts of things that are, that I think, pressing upon the government to do many things at once, and it's impossible for it to actually do them. Mm-hmm. Your upbringing and your experience with the war shaped a lot of your studies, and Nelson and I were interested in asking about your, your dissertation and how you came to it and what it's about. So I actually went through a couple of phases of my dissertation. 
initially I wanted to do a dissertation on Central American cinema. And so I was looking at, um, which is kind of interesting for the podcast, I wanted to do a, a kind of long history of Central that, that American... That might answer how you found us, huh? <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. So I wanted to do this thing about Central American cinema that looked at the moment of the birth of cinema in the late 19th century, where there were Frenchmen, Germans, Englishmen coming through Central America through various caravans or carnival circuits and sharing cinema and introducing people, the peoples of Central America and throughout the world to cinema. So then I had that project, but I left it behind. Not, and the reason was because it's like, it's logistically really challenging. So instead I shifted and, uh, and went to thinking about questions of indigeneity. So in the academy right now, there's a kind of renaissance of indigenous studies, indigenous studies and Native American studies. And there's a, there's a kind of critical mass of scholarship that's based primarily in, in North America. So there's a lot of scholarship on Canada, a lot of scholarship on the United States. And there's already been a bunch of scholarship in the Mesoamerican region, in South America, but none of it is really dialoguing with each other. There have been kind of separate formations for a very long time. And so what, what I saw in that, in that kind of, in this moment that Academy is undergoing, that there's a space for a kind of Central American perspective that not only kind of conceptually links the two regions, but kind of geographically does so as well. And so I began thinking about indigeneity as a kind of, as a central thing to Salvadoran identity and Salvadoran ways of being that are, that are not necessarily acknowledged as such. So we tend to think of El Salvador as a country of mestizos, of, you know, of, of foreigners, of, you know, Afro-Latinos on one part, and indigenous people as well. But indigenous people are marginalized in the constitutional and political culture of the country. So if we think about, like, the Civil War, where were indigenous people in the Civil War? You know, they're not, they're not really present in the narrative that we tell, but they totally were. They were part of the left, they were part of the right, they were part of the neutral parties, they were, they were there. Many of their communities were severely affected by the Civil War, but that's a story that is yet to be told. And I think contributing that, I mean, and, and my dissertation looks at various moments in the country's history. I look at the 1930s with, the, with, the, with La Matanza, a huge massacre that happens in El Salvador. I look at the kind of the authoritarian regimes that follow La Matanza and how indigeneity is kind of rewritten and becomes more mestizo rather than kind of understanding that there are actual communities still living in the national territory and recognizing them as such. Um, but yeah, so I think about the 1980s and the contemporary moment as to how indigeneity plays a, a huge part in, in the narratives of those moments and, and how indigenous people have in certain ways been erased or slowly kind of eroded away from those narratives in order to serve a kind of larger project of nation building and the creation of nationalism in El Salvador that doesn't include indigenous people. It includes mestizos, it includes, you know, foreign elites, Palestinians, Chinese, it can includes it includes those communities that are have economically contributed to the country in a way that's kind of palatable to to the economy. But indigenous people are are never part of that equation. And so my my work tries to kind of interrogate that, why that is, provide some answers hopefully. So I guess one of the things we wanted to find out as we're talking to you about the dissertation is how does this or how would you explain it to someone who isn't an academic? Like, what's that crossover that you're hoping to achieve? 
Yeah, I mean, so the, that crossover question is really interesting because it's all that's always the hard part being an academic to get to get like a popular audience to listen to you because you just you sound like you sound crazy, you know, using <laughs> you know, ten dollar words and you know all the It's terrible. I just want to take a stab at discussing your work from, from you know what I'm hearing. Sure. You're looking yeah. at Native American populations in El Salvador, which is not a way people are used to looking at. You know, it's just not something that's as recognized. And looking at their their contributions to society and uh, helping them be better recognized as such, right? Is that the the short version? Sure. sure. Yeah. I guess that's it. I was hoping there was something more critical. <laughs> I'm not really just interested in the recognition of indigenous people because I think there is a kind of there are people who have recognized indigenous communities and their contributions, but to me, it's a kind of larger systemic problem of the country itself. And it's not just El Salvador, right? This is Guatemala. This is everyone um, mm-hmm. that has like continuously invented and shared narratives about indigenous people as kind of deviant, criminal, communist, anti-modern, primitive, savage, so on and so forth. It's about mm-hmm. really kind of interrogating that problem and then exploring how those discourses and those ideas kind of have affected the communities that actually exist in those countries. So throughout, throughout history, there's a lot of examples of their identity being codified and sort of criminalized. Right, yeah, it's policed. It's policed in a lot of ways because it's seen as kind of not contributing to the modernization of the country. Mm-hmm. So there's like... There are many documents that talk about, you know, the elimination of the native is necessary for El Salvador to to modernize and contribute to like global society. You know, so they're very, very interesting and scary. So so is it a kind of an attempt to say that we're like as Salvadorans, they are mm-hmm. marginalizing the indigenous population, but mm-hmm. we're all indigenous. And therefore, we're marginalizing ourselves and sort of creating this. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a a complex thread that I'm going through. And I don't want to say that we're all Indians because that's also kind of, you know, evacuates indigeneity of any meaning, really. But but what I'm trying to say is that there there are aspects of kind of Salvadoran history that have made criminal indigeneity. And as such, we're living in a country that like is anti-Indian to its core, and we need to question that in order to develop better national policy, to develop a kind of more inclusive and collaborative form of governance that includes indigenous people and includes their ways of their ways of being, their ways of knowing, their ways of governing themselves as a kind of model perhaps to reform the state and to develop better ways of, of coexisting rather than rather than kind of always living through this kind of irresolvable antagonism between people from the cities and people from the country, you know, indigenous people, whites and Latinos, you know, mestizos and indigenous people, Afro-Latinos, blacks, you know, and so on and so forth. Are, kind of, are there a lot of Afro-Latinos in El Salvador? I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, like... That was one of the things that was surprising to me. And I, again, my, you know, some of my history is a little superficial, but I had read that at one point, El Salvador made it illegal for Africans to enter. Sure. And I never, yeah. while we were there, we were there for 10 days, I didn't see an African-American. I don't know what the well, correct phrase African is. African-American is fine. We're on the same continent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I didn't see an African-American person in those 
in those 10 days. And I thought that was an interesting thing about the identity of El Salvador. Yeah, I mean, see, this is, this is interesting, too, because one of the arguments that I make, and I'm writing a paper right now about this, is actually exactly about the 1930s. Where, where we're thinking about the 1930s as a moment where we have indigenous massacres simultaneously while the country, and this is the Maximiliano Hernandez Martinez regime, that's creating laws and codifying anti-blackness into the, mm-hmm. into the country's constitution. So there's this kind of, there's this two things that are happening simultaneously in the 1930s that become almost like, not a, I don't want to say a foundational fiction, but one of the many foundational fictions as to the identity of the Salvadoran people. Right? We're not black and we're not Indian because the Indians all got killed and the blacks all got expelled. Right? And so, so what are we? So we're just, we're just Spanish and partly indigenous because we really can't deny the way we look. But if you go to El Salvador, you just you see features. You, can just, you, just, you might not see like black people in the same way that you might see on the Caribbean coast, but you do see people. I mean, Nelson has curly hair. Why is that? You know? Because indigenous hair is straight, you know. Like, why? Why do we have? Why are there these features? There's people with, you know, certain kinds of builds that are African in origin, and and there's there's research on this stuff. Very very small amount of research on this stuff, but there's there's African people have been, you know, a huge contribution to Salvadoran genetics, if you will, a Salvadoran ethnic identity. Um, it's just one of those things that's underplayed. It's underplayed because again, it's not it's not fashionable. It's not it's not seen as positive to be identified with those communities because of their perceived backwardness or impoverishment or lack of morals and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But they're around. I mean, there 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 were many communities um, in El Salvador that were established by people who became marooned in places like Honduras, Costa Rica. Sure. Um, we, um, and, and, my wife and I got married last year, and we actually went to Belize and where we stayed, there was a lot of the Garifana people, mm-hmm. which was a community of, of Africans that defined themselves as uh, from an island in the Caribbean. Not, they didn't define themselves as African. They defined themselves as Caribbean, and they had had a slave revolt and ended up in Honduras and Belize and, and all these places. But Yeah, yeah, there's the Misquitos in Honduras and Nicaragua. I mean, there these communities are there, and a lot of them, you know, have as is the case of everywhere, there's mobility, people move around. And so there has been, there has been people moving from the Caribbean coast to the Pacific, and that includes El Salvador. It's one of those things that is, again, part of the, the racial denial of El Salvador itself. But it's something that we need to kind of be attendant to and, and think about more closely. It's probably a, a discussion that's lost in this country because of, of our own prejudices or impressions or... You know, we have these debates about people coming across the border and people look at it through a certain lens and lose a lot of the complexity in their <laughs> right in, in any perception or not you know understanding exactly mm-hmm. I mean yeah Africans and indigenous people have contributed immensely to to El Salvador as laborers primarily in the colonial period you know and there's been intermarriages and you know racial mixing since. But that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that those those people and that identity got eliminated out of existence, right? Mm-hmm. So much of our discussion and our documentary is focused on a time period twenty to thirty years ago, mm-hmm. and and I think a lot of your research and a lot of your work is is about things over 
hundreds of years. And and it, I think it's I just want to point out it's it, you know here's a country with a rich history and uh, and while our focus is on the the very recent past, mm-hmm. um, it's it's great to get to discuss with you things that that go a little further back. Right. Yeah. So so I was considering calling this part of the podcast the uh, John and Jorge section where we do <laughs> talk about history. <laughs> no, uh, it sort of happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, how has this changed you? What have you learned about yourself or maybe El Salvador that you didn't otherwise know? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that I that I already knew just based on talking to people, you know. I, I go back to El Salvador routinely and, and, you know, just talking to family, cousins, friends. I've learned a lot about myself through, through those experiences. But the dissertation and kind of the intellectual kind of inquiry into all of this is very different. And it's given me a lot, a lot of stuff to really chew on because the amount of detail and the, and the kind of arguments that historians and, and scholars make about Salvadoran history, Central America's place in the world, its contribution to the global economy, racism, migration, economics, the whole thing, are very nuanced. And sometimes they don't necessarily reflect what I've lived or the stories people tell me, but sometimes they do. And so in the moments where, they, where it does, the scholarship has been very, very good in giving me that necessary depth and deepening my understanding of why it is that I migrated here, why is it that I end up at a place like Yale, um, going through the academy, you know, being interested by these questions, but having this kind of political history behind me, a very troubled political history, a very kind of strange identity where I'm Salvadoran, but what does that mean in relationship to Mexico, to Guatemala? You know, what does that mean? So, like, being in L.A. was a way, was something, was an experience that contributed to my to my inquiring mind to, to think through these issues. And so when I arrived at the dissertation and when I got the time to think about these things, yeah, it, it, it really helped me to not only intellectually but, but also personally kind of see the various Venn diagrams of racial identity, you know, and politics and economics. And how they all came to, to, to form the Salvadoran that I am today. The Salvadorans that are in El Salvador, the ones that are in L.A., the ones that are in D.C. And the various kinds of trajectories that this deep history that, we, that largely goes untold kind of led to that. There are various reasons why it led to that. And, not, and it's not only the war, right? It's about the authoritarian regimes prior to the war, the failure of land reform, repression against indigenous peoples, you know, all these kinds of things that led to, to an unstable environment that erupted in war, which then leads to the contemporary moment where this is the reason you and I find ourselves in the situation we're in, right? In a kind of, not necessarily a bad one, but removed from the country of origin for whatever reason. And so the dissertation kind of really allowed me to, or is still allowing, because I'm still working on it, to, to think through these questions you know, and, and find some profundity to better understand who I am. <laughs> yeah. you, you make a great point about Salvadorans and sort of different Salvadorans in different parts of the country and, and maybe the world. Because, you know, one thing I noticed that I've mentioned before is that, you know, in 2012, I want to say I took a trip out to L.A., 
I went to uh, Pico Union and I met Salvadorans from the area. And it was an incredible experience because when I met them, I was sort of introduced as one of the disappeared. And just sort of when it clicked for them, they're like, oh, you're one of the disappeared and you're coming back to us. You know, they if you disappeared during the war, that was it. They never saw you again. And to have yeah. someone return to them was, you know, that was pretty overwhelming for me, but just, I think for them. And what I noticed about them that I thought was different from the Salvadorans in El Salvador is when I told them that I was making on a film, making a film about my experiences, they understood the potential of that. You know, they understood this is a, you could be telling our story to a much wider audience. Like they, they sort of understood that where in El Salvador, I'm not sure if they understood that, you know, John and I could make this film that could be seen by thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So that, that was interesting to me just to see that these, there were these two different, I don't want to say types of Salvadorans, but sort of culturally, you know, they, they were a little bit yeah. different. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, um, I mean, that's geographic. And the reason being, I mean, you're in LA, Hollywood is right yeah. there. The potential of cinema is a kind of medium of dissemination of information is something that's super present in LA. And, you know, there, there are many kind of Salvadoran youth who are engaged in small scale cinema projects, you know, they're YouTubers or whatever it is, but their media is very present in the culture of LA and it's no different in the Salvadoran community. But in El Salvador itself, it seems to me there's still a kind of, some things are inaccessible. And that's the reason why there might be some pessimism or not, maybe not pessimism, but inability to see the potential of such a film in sharing the story of the disappeared. Because while those cultural products that are created in El Salvador might be, or, or about El Salvador, are interesting and have an ordinate amount of potential, they never really make it back to the country. And so people don't really get to see them. You know, that was one of the problems that I ran into in looking at contemporary cinema in El Salvador today. Like, people are making films, right? People are, people are engaged in all sorts of creative projects, but then where do they show them? Where do they screen them? How, how, how can people of the country see those narratives that are about themselves? The, the venues don't really exist. There are very, very few venues, and those venues usually have some kind of art film from Argentina or from Chile or from Spain. You know, those things are kind of there. But the, the space for the national cinema or the Salvadoran cinema speaking about itself doesn't, doesn't really have a space yet. And so that kind of that pessimism that some Salvadorans might feel or see in your project, it has nothing to do with your project. The project is great, but it's, but yeah, it's partly it's, to... It's more about that, the opportunity and understanding yeah. what's possible, right? Like, it's, I mean, it's, it's great that you're doing it, but I'll never get to see it, you know? Right. Um, it's one of those things. So I hope that if you, if you, right when, now, when, the, when the film is completed, you, uh, you get a chance to screen it in El Salvador a few times so we can oh, get to the right okay. people. People can see it. Yeah. I, I think one, one thing we've always talked about is how do we get it? How do we make it more accessible for the people who helped us tell the story? So I think that's something we're working on from doing dual captions. So mm -hmm. English for the Spanish and Spanish for the English. Right. Yeah. 
that that can I ask, Nelson, can I ask you a question? Sure. Because you, you've mentioned that feeling you had several times, and, yeah. and I'm your partner, and I still don't quite get it. Because <laughs> to me, my experience was when we went, I'm just being honest, and, and yep. tell me, I just want to understand. When we went to El Salvador, people were very generous with their stories, and uh, I don't know. So I'm wondering, I wasn't there when you met with people in Pico Union, so I'm well, wondering... I, I think it was, it, it wasn't so much that they were... Um, you know, pessimism probably isn't isn't the right word, but they, you know, people in El Salvador were very willing to share their story and talk about their experiences. But the difference being, when I was in Pico Union and I told them, you could see their eyes light up. They kind of got it in a way that, you know, your point about being close to Hollywood and understanding how the right film or the right whatever can shape a cultural narrative. I think they got that in a way that maybe people in El Salvador haven't experienced yet. So that was, it was a very subtle difference that, that I picked up on, but it was just the sort of excitement in their eyes and, and that they understood, here's this person who could really share our experiences with a much brighter, uh, wider audience. You know, I, I don't know if I'm explaining it well. It was more of a, a perception or a feeling than any sort of concrete like yeah. statement that they made. Yeah, I mean, actually, I have one more thought about this. There's, um, I mean, your film, if it's screened in El Salvador, which I imagine it will, the reason people might be kind of unsure about the film and its impact is because they don't necessarily perhaps get the intent. So the intent might, necess- might be to open up a, a productive conversation about the disappeared, I kind of think through the problems that led to it and some ways that we might be able to rectify this problem and reunite families and so on and so forth. But some people might see it as, oh, you're opening a conversation that we're not ready to have yet, hmm. um, right? And so, you know, some, and this is, again... Or, or that of, it's just much more controversial there, Right, right? it's a political question, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, and in a, to an American audience, I think it's this is just... Uh, we struggle a lot with who are we making it for and what's our audience, right? Yeah. And I think we've come to, because of our sensibilities, I mean, first and foremost, I'd like to help Nelson tell the stories of what it means to be one of these quote-unquote disappeared children, you know, 35-year-old disappeared children at this point. But I think we're talking probably to an American sensibility and people that really haven't been exposed to it, and they're going to see it as a simple human rights story. And yeah, may, maybe to an, to an American, that's not controversial in the truth. While they may not be aware of it, once they hear it, it might not be so much in dispute as it would to a Salvadoran. That's an interesting point. Yeah, exactly. So we are coming up on the, the top of the hour here. So I want to start to wrap things up. Um, but first, I wanted to uh, ask you Jorge, if there was anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't that we didn't touch upon yet, I mean, there's always things, but yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I guess maybe. I mean, one of the things that so last semester, uh, I, well, two semesters ago, I spoke to the Salvadoran student group on campus, the one that you that you visited, Nelson, about this this last uh, presidential election of Salvador Sanchez Seren, 
And so I, and what I mentioned was not only the polarized politics of El Salvador, but how there is a space being opened in El Salvador for kind of the conversation of the disappeared to take a certain kind of moment, to gain certain kind of momentum within society, the question of indigeneity to gain a certain kind of momentum. So there's political space being opened in the country in the same way that it has been in other, other Latin American states, not only through the celebration and through the kind of concerted efforts to remedy some of these problems. So for example, the language Nahuatl became codified into the constitution this year. Um, so now it's something that is going to change the education in El Salvador that includes some Nahuatl instruction, which is, I think, a very interesting move. So is that, so it, how did it become codified into the constitution as that there will be some education around it or, or is it even larger than that? Well, I mean, it's, it's sort of larger than that. So because of the, the kind of moves made by international organs like the United Nations and these kinds of um, regional councils that I mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of pressure to make some kind of move to incorporate indigeneity into, into El Salvador. And given that the government is um, a left-leaning government, it's following the model of countries like Bolivia, countries like Ecuador, in some ways countries like Mexico, who have also made certain gestures to indigenous peoples within their, within their nation mm-hmm. state. I mean, there's, there's a problem here too, right? It can, it can be very symbolic if it doesn't, if it can remain symbolic if it doesn't turn into anything else. But this is something that I think people aren't aware that is happening in El Salvador. And I just wanted to, to give it some, some space in the podcast. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. My knowledge of Spanish is really perfunctory and it's, it's great to get to talk to you and, and, and hear about your dissertation and hear about some things we don't usually talk about because I think it, it informs what we're doing from a little different perspective. It's been great being on here. To wrap up this episode, I'm going to have one final question for you. And it's something that I asked you before, and uh, I, I wanted to hear your answer on the podcast. And maybe you have a different take on it this time. But what does it mean to you to be Salvador? All right, so I'll start with the answer I gave you previously. The answer I gave you previously was that it means to be a kind of tragic figure, to be a, a, a person and from a place that such a rich place, but has undergone such terrible series of unfortunate events. And as a result, the position that we occupy today, not only in the country, but in the diaspora of various places, is sometimes very saddening because of the kind of deficits that we as a people have accrued because of the war, because of various violences previous to that, and so on. This was actually just like a visceral reaction or, you know, having just watched your film. So it all felt very tragic, you know, the narration and stuff. But it's like, I should feel something. And so this is what I felt. Today, what does it mean to be Salvadoran? I mean, it means to be resilient. It means to be conscious. It means to be generous. This, and this, these are all, the, I mean, I just came back from Los Angeles hanging out with various Salvadorans. And this is all I felt. This is all I felt, just kind of their warmth, their generosity, my own warmth and my own generosity. And, and the resilience to, like, to persevere and to, 
and to struggle and to struggle with a positive attitude for for better things not only better things but better better lives right and i think the the consciousness aspect of this is something that increasingly i see in, in salvadoran youth who are who are becoming very interested and involved not only politically socially and culturally and interested in kind of asking the right questions and they're doing it very effectively to try to to try to get at these various kind of blind spots or you know dark patches of Salvadoran history and Salvadoran identity i think the new generations aren't willing to to let these uh let these stories continue as they have been um and i and that to me is very kind of energizing and i hope that i'm contributing a little bit to that as well i know that your film is you know illuminating a, a an aspect of of Salvadoran history that um is very unknown so that to me i guess is a long way of saying i think Salvador, being being Salvadoran today for me means being resilient conscious and generous i think that's a great place to end the conversation thank you so much for coming on we'll definitely have you on again some point um uh, i think uh, john would uh, would get a big kick out of that let's do it again mm-hmm.